Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 19. One. When the orb flashed, the people gathered in the library thought it was lightning or the fireball from an explosion. A few of them cringed, waiting for a boom that never came. They had all gotten used to the orb lighting up like someone had just kindled a fire. This time was different, much bigger, and Sal heard a collective gasp pass through the archives. She'd heard the sound before many times when she'd been a cop with the NYPD. There had been a fire in an apartment building once, and a crowd had gathered to watch. She was in uniform on the other side of a barricade, and she kept trying to get the people to move back. They wouldn't listen to her. Then, behind her, the fire flared. Maybe a floor had collapsed, or the wind shifted and fed the flames. And the people watching had made a noise almost like what she heard in the archives now. She told everyone to move back. They did. What was that? Liam asked. Asante was sitting next to the orb, still rubbing her eyes. I don't know. Asante said. She blinked. The orb hummed, throwing off enough light to illuminate the ceiling of the archives. There were architectural features up there that Sal had never seen. Frances appeared from behind a bookcase and looked at the orb, obvious worry on her face. Please tell me you were running a test of some kind, she said. Asante shook her head. Have you ever seen it like this? Sal said. No, Manchu said. How do we find out what happened? The old-fashioned way, Asante said. They looked at each other, and then at Sal. You're the cop, Liam said. Sal nodded. It was almost like she was putting on her badge again, almost like she'd been promoted. Okay, she said. If whatever happened is as big as it seems, it can't be that hard to find out where it was. Someone must be talking about it. Right, Menchu said. But most of those people don't like to talk to us. Well, some of them do, Sal said. Uh, Santi, is there anyone you can call? Maybe someone from that conference you went to? You seem to meet a lot of useful people there. Useful? Asante said. They're not tools. Cut me some slack, Sal said. I'm in command mode. She glanced over at Manchu. He seemed pleased. What about your friend in Mexico? She asked Asante. Asante nodded. I'll call. Liam, Sal said. Liam, Liam. I don't have anyone who owes me any favors right now, Liam said. I think I've used them all up. But you have people who'd be willing to talk to you, Sal said. I don't know, I'd say we burned some bridges lately. But not all of them. What about the people we talked to when we were under attack right here in the archives for holding the Codex Umbra? The two who live right here in town? 
Nicolescu and Marangos, Liam said. Yeah, them, Sal said. I bet you they know something. Huh, Liam said. Well, they might, but they're mercenaries to the core, in case you don't remember. It'll cost us. We're the Vatican, and we're worried about money, Sal said. Manchu gave her a disapproving look. You're gonna disagree with me, Sal said to him. No, Manchu said. It's just that our goodwill with our superiors is uh, stretched rather thin. I think we need to worry about that later, Asante said. You're not the one who has to talk to them, Manchu said. Sal could see the tension between Asante and Manchu rising. They'd been arguing more and more lately. It wouldn't take much to set them off and make this whole conversation unproductive. She interjected before Asante could respond. Do you see any other way? Sal asked Manchu. Manchu sighed. No. Sal breathed a little easier and turned to Liam. Let's set up a meeting with them then. Aye, aye, Captain, Liam said. He got out his phone and started texting. I'll get Grace, Manchu said, and talk to the Monsignors. What are you going to tell them? Asante asked. That something has happened, something bigger than we've ever seen, and we may need everything we have. Sal had seen Manchu worried before and knew what that looked like. This looked worse. Good luck, she said. I think we'll all need the luck, he replied. Are we going to fight about this again right now? Asante asked. He shook his head. We don't have time. Sal knew what he meant by that. We already know what we're going to say anyway. Asante would argue that a threat like this was exactly why the society needed to use more magic. Manchu would argue back that the threat showed how useless all of Asante's work had been. The fight would only end when one of them backed off. Nothing resolved. My team is shaky right now, Sal thought. Too shaky. Manchu headed toward the stairs out of the archives, but not before a last glance back at the orb, still hot and throwing sharp shadows at the walls. Liam was already off the phone. Nicolescu and Marangos are willing to meet with us, he said. In fact, they seem as eager to talk to us as we are to them. That's good, right? Francis said. No, Liam said. They never want to talk to us. I think they already know just how much we're willing to pay them, but there's something else. He hesitated. What is it? Francis asked. I think they're scared, Liam said. Can I come with you to meet them? Francis said. Liam paused. Sure, he said. I'd like that. Sal recognized the tone in Liam's voice. She rolled her eyes, made sure Liam was aware of it. I'm coming too, Sal said. She thought she saw a glance pass between Liam and Francis, definitely from Liam's end, maybe not from Francis's. Maybe I'm making this up, Sal thought. All right then, Liam said. Let's go. Sal, Liam, and Francis stood at the entrance to an abandoned metro tunnel on the outskirts of the city, half grown over with straggly bushes. They'd had to hop a fence to get down to the tracks to begin with. Above them, on an overpass, an old man and woman were looking at them with curiosity, suspicion, and a little bit of judgment. In front of them, the cyclone fence that was supposed to be blocking the entrance to the tunnel had already been cut. Liam stepped forward and pushed it open. After you, he said. Last time we met these guys was in a cafe, Sal said. They're afraid of someone else hearing, Liam said. Make that anyone else, Francis said. Oh, right. The mouth of the tunnel receded behind them. Liam turned on his phone's light. A few rats scurried off, and then there was only the sound of their own footsteps bouncing off the dirt-streaked walls. The temperature dropped. How far does this tunnel go, Francis asked. 
A few kilometers, I think. And when do you expect we'll run across them? Sal said. I don't think they're planning on hiding from us, Liam said. Just from everyone else. They went on for another minute and heard a whistle up ahead. It's us, Liam called. There was a shuffle of feet and a lantern blazed in the dark, revealing two familiar faces and one stranger dressed in a long coat and wearing goggles and a surgical mask, not an inch of skin to be seen. Cosme Nicolescu, Liam said to Francis, Hassan Marangos. No need for formal introductions, Nicolescu said. I'm afraid there is, Liam said. You said there would be three of you, Marango said. It's only fair, yes? Yeah, Liam said, but who's your third? The human voice cannot uh, pronounce her name, Nicolescu said. Does she have a nickname, Liam said. The veil, Marango said. You'll see why in a moment. Nicolescu nodded at the veil, whose arms rose. She stretched out her gloved hands. Her fingers and arms grew perceptibly longer, more fluid. And it occurred to Sal then that the veil was probably not entirely made of flesh. That the clothes were somehow more like a container and were close to losing their shape. Soft light emanated from the veil's hands and made a wispy curtain around them. It kept moving, flowing, until it covered the ceiling of the tunnel above them and the dirt below their feet in its wavering glow. It enveloped them. The veil gave Morangos a curt nod. We can speak freely now, Nicolescu said. Tell us what you know, Liam said. We don't know anything as concrete as we want, Nicolescu said, but the rumors are very, very upsetting. Please elaborate, Sale said. Nicolescu's eyes got sharp. As I recall, he said, you were the conduit for all the society's trouble not long ago. I was, Sal said, but that's done now. Is it? Marango said. As done as anything magic ever is, Sal said. There was a pause, and then Marangos nodded. Nicolescu shrugged. Good answer, he said. We don't have a lot of time for this, Liam said. All right, then, Marangos said. I assume that you have heard of the network? Yes, Sal said. You've dealt with them already, Nicolescu said. You're good at reading people, Sal said. He inclined his head slightly in acknowledgement and moved on. For weeks now, there have been rumors about experiments being conducted with magic. We have had reports from all over the world, in Mexico, China, Ireland, uh, Poland, even somewhere in the Mediterranean, uh, an island, they say. Sal didn't look at Liam or Francis and hope neither of them glanced her way either. What makes you say they were experiments instead of just people using magic? She asked. Well, Morango said, to begin, because it appears that you didn't intervene, unless you have gotten much better at leaving no trace. We haven't, Liam said. We want you to know what we've done. Smart, Sal thought. Though Nicolescu may or may not have bought the line, she couldn't tell. The larger reason we believe them to be experiments, however, is because the network has been either not very good at or not very interested in keeping their agenda private, he said. That the network is interested in changing the landscape of magic in our world has been an open secret. They are not even unique in wanting this. Most of those who decide to use magic are trying to change the world, or at least their own lives in some way. The difference is that the network appears to have succeeded, Marango said. The chatter, Nicolescu continued, 
is that they have brought far more magic into the world at once than anyone has in a very, very long time. What do you mean? Francis said. I suppose, to use their terminology, you might say they have established a connection, Nicolescu said. Made a link. Opened a floodgate, Liam said. That, Marangos answered, is not entirely clear, but it's possible, which is why we brought the veil. Sal frowned. I have to ask why you're telling us all this. It's a fair question, Nicolescu said. He hesitated. We have discussed this, Marango said. I know. You can tell them the truth. Are you sure? Yes, we have nothing to lose. All right, Nicolescu said. The truth is that we have come to realize that we need you. The society, that is, Marango said. Instability is bad for business, Sal asked. Yes, of course, Nicolescu said, but we are not as heartless as that. We have staked our claim on the balance of magic in the world in part because we believe in it, understand the rules. We believe in just enough magic, Marango said, but not too much. Now that balance is shifting, tilting away from us, away, I am afraid, from uh, humanity. And you think we can tilt it back, Francis said. We think you are perhaps the only ones who can. There are others who want to, but they don't have the means. And there are those who have the means, but don't want to. Team four, Sal thought. You are the only ones who have both, Nicolescu said. And that is why we are helping you. Interesting choice, given that as marketeers in black magic, you're in the crosshairs of our state of mission, Liam said. Both Nicolescu and Marangos laughed out loud. Even the veil twitched a little. We live in interesting times, Marango said. So tell me again about where you heard that these experiments were conducted. Mexico, China, Ireland, Poland, and the Mediterranean, Nicolescu said. Liam nodded. Good. Uh, anything else? No, Marango said. All right, then, Liam said. Pleasure as always, gentlemen. They all shook hands. The veil peeled the light out of the air and the tunnel went dark again. Sal, Liam, and Francis turned back toward the tiny light. They waited until they were well out of earshot. Highly convenient that two other data points are us, Liam said. Do you really think they don't know what we're doing? Francis asked. Either that or they suspected us and wanted to see if we would confirm it, Liam said. Nice work not giving it away. Nice work throwing them off altogether, Francis said. Thanks, Liam said. In the lights from their phones, Sal saw Liam through Francis' smile one she recognized. Then she watched Francis return it. We still have to narrow it down from Mexico, Ireland, and China. Not exactly places we can just drive to and check out, Sal said. No, but uh, I have a feeling I already know, Liam said. He got out his phone and called a number, waited a few seconds, then suddenly looked startled and hung up. What is it, Sal said. I tried to call Christina, he said. And? Well... Liam said, call her yourself and listen, but you're gonna wanna hang up fast. He gave his phone to Sal. It was already ringing. It rang three times through static, but the static grew and grew until it sounded like a thousand voices shrieking, rushing toward her, reaching for her, coming to get her. That's what it felt like. She hung up before they arrived. What was that? Sal said. I'm afraid we're gonna find out, Liam said. 
We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Two. The little town of Middlecombe lay along the crease of a low valley, along the banks of a winding stream that ended at the sea. When the wind was right, the townspeople on the other end of the valley could smell the salt water. Rory lived in a small stuccoed house in the center of town with her family, Mum, Da, her older sister, Kara, and her brother, Parik. Da worked in a small fish processing plant in the next town over as a foreman. Mum worked in a small grocery in their town. She walked to work after the kids headed off to school. Okada was the industrious one, an entrepreneur. It was her last year before university, and she was already talking about getting a business degree, then coming back and buying a fishing boat, maybe a small fleet of them. It didn't matter to her that people said the fishing was getting rough, maybe impossible. She was going to do it and make money at it, she said. Patrick, the middle child, just over a year behind her, had no sense of what he wanted to do other than possibly leave the town. Or maybe he would stay. There was no idea that stuck long with him. And then there was Rory, two years younger than Patrick, who knew with the serenity that only complete certainty can bring that she wanted to go somewhere else as soon as she could. She didn't hate the town, but every time she crested the ridge to head inland, whether she was on a bike or in the car with Mama Da, she looked out over the ocean. She swore she could see the curve of the world and wanted to see more. And her family was starting to irritate her. She couldn't say how, wasn't quite able to get her head around it yet, but that didn't make her annoyance any less real. And this morning, she had a headache. 
The pounding in her skull woke her before her alarm and kept her bleary-eyed in the bathroom. She fumbled for some aspirin and took it, dressed in a haze. Come on, Roar, her mom said. Move it along. You're gonna be late for school. Leave me alone, she said. Hmm, her mom said. You could at least wait until after breakfast to be that rude. Um, sorry, Rory said. I don't feel right. When was the last time you did, Puttick said. Shut up, Rory said. Yeah, shut up, Puttick, Kara said. You first, Puttick said. All of you, their mum said. Give it a rest, will you? A keening started in the back of Rory's skull and crept across the sides behind her ears. It was a normal little breakfast bed her family was having, she told herself, but it didn't feel that way. Mom, that's not fair, Kata said. What's not fair? Paddock's the one being rudest. I don't care who's being rudest, their mom said. The keening rose. Rory almost couldn't understand what any of them were saying. You only don't care when it's Paddock who starts things, Kata said. You're easier on him than on Rory and me. That's not true, their mom said. Yeah, it's not, Paddock said, smiling. Did you hear him? Kata said, her voice rose. Did you hear what he said? Of course I heard him, their mom said. How could I know when you're all speaking to each other at the top of your lungs? Below the keening was a running throb in Rory's brain. It must be my pulse, Rory thought, though it seemed too fast for that. God help her if that really was her pulse. She felt horrible and the fight surrounding her was not helping. Yeah, all of you, she said. Shut the fuck up. Puttick and Cotter both turned to her, their mouths open a little. Rory, her mom said, what's gone into you? I don't know, Rory wanted to say, but she didn't. Instead, she said, you all have, that's the problem. The shock in the room didn't dissipate, and Rory's conscience told her to apologize. But it seemed too late for that now. She dove in. You all, with your endless bickering about nothing, your endless saying you're tired of this place, but they're not going anywhere, she said. Carter, if you want to leave, leave already. No one is stopping you. No one. Same for you, Puttick. The bus to Dublin leaves at noon, but you won't be on it because the truth is that you have no other place to be anyway. Rory, her mom said. Best to stop talking. The headache flared again and Rory rubbed her temples. She did not know how to get through dealing with her family this morning. Why, so I can stay here stuck in this town like you and Da? She didn't even know why she said it. She'd been riding a wave of indignation and now it had carried her out to sea. And her headache was getting worse. You don't mean that, her mom said. The hurt in her voice sounded genuine. Rory fumbled for an apology, but she couldn't find it. What is wrong with me, she thought. I'm just, Rory said, I- I'm just going to school, all right? Her mom gave her a long look, and Rory prayed she wasn't going to start yelling at her. Then the woman's features softened, and Rory felt a small ripple of relief. Her mom had decided that this morning... It wasn't worth it. Don't go without toast, her mom said. She handed Rory a slice. Fine, Rory said. You're welcome, her mom said. Rory stumbled out the door. She hated her family right then, but knew at the same time it was the headache talking. She'd never felt anything like it. She looked up at the sky. It was pinker than usual. More pink, she realized, than she'd seen it in a long time. Last summer, she'd stayed up all night with a friend, just talking, And when they realized it was almost dawn, they had walked to the top of the ridge to watch the sun come up. All around them, from where they were standing, down the long grassy slope, through the town to the harbor and the sea beyond, it swam in pink light. It was too far past dawn for the sky to look like that now, but there it was. It flickered 
She saw it, but her headache was getting sharper. She looked around at the cars passing by her in the road, a handful of people walking on the opposite side. And they noticed it too. The fluorescent lights in the school, once she got there, seemed rose-tinted. Rory sat at her desk in her first class and looked down at her notebook. She couldn't read what she'd written the day before. She turned the page, put her pen to the paper, and tried to write the date on the top line. Her hand moved, began to describe an intricate pattern that spiraled outward from where she'd started and soon covered the page in a web of connected lines. It only took her a half minute to do it, like the pattern was already on the page and all she was doing was tracing it. When she was done, the headache felt a little better. She looked up. Almost everyone in the class was staring at her. What? she said. None of her classmates spoke. Rory, her teacher said. You don't look good. I have a terrible headache, she said. I think you need to go to the nurse, the teacher said. Can you get there yourself? I know where it is, Rory said. Her teacher just looked at her. That's not what I was asking, her eyes said. Rory got up and walked into the hallway. The color of the light was changing, flashing with orange. It was suddenly a little harder to walk. She looked down at her feet. Every time she took a step, they sank into the floor a little. Tiniest ripples passed through the linoleum tile. She followed one of them, watched it race down the hall in front of her. She took another step and watched another ripple dart up the wall and across the ceiling where it joined the other side of the ripple that had climbed the opposite wall. They made a little peak of a standing wave directly over her head and then subsided. Her teacher was right. I need to go to the nurse's office, she thought. The nurse dropped the notepad she was carrying when she saw Rory walk in the door. I have a headache and I'm seeing things, Rory said. The nurse took a second to respond. I think you need to come in right away, she said. She bustled over, put a hand on Rory's back. It felt much colder than Rory expected. Can you see all right, the nurse said. Yeah, Rory said. Why? Huh, the nurse said. She moved Rory to a room with a cot. There was a mirror on the wall at the foot of it. The nurse sat Rory down on the bed, let Rory figure out that she should turn her head and see what she looked like. It was as if her face were made of candle wax and as if she had been lit for a few minutes and was not yet cool. Her skin was smooth and shiny. A glob of it had flowed to cover her left eye. It looked in the mirror like there was no eye there at all anymore, just a small bump of flesh, but Rory could still see as well as ever. Maybe the right eye was compensating? It was bigger, brighter, and if her face had engulfed the left eye, it had started to abandon the right. It bulged from her face. The eyelashes rose and twitched in the air like the tendrils of a carnivorous plant. She spent a few seconds watching it blink and then noticed that her nose had nearly smoothed itself into her face. Her mouth had shrunk to a slit seemingly without teeth, but she could still feel teeth in front of her tongue. She raised her hand from her lap to touch her face. Her hand was different, spindlier. The nails were gone. She had only two fingers and a thumb. The weirdest part about the whole thing was that she was all right with it. It was just that the headache was worse than ever. There was almost a sound to it, she thought, a buzzing murmur on the underside of the top of her skull. No, not almost a sound, actually a sound, as though she were picking up a transmission. Her scalp tingled with it. She could hear the nurse on the phone with her mom telling her to come get Rory right away. She decided she wasn't too keen on the idea. 
She turned the palms of her hands to face the ceiling, looked up, and began to rise. The ceiling wobbled. The top of her head melted with it as though they were two pieces of wet clay pushed together. She kept pushing. For a few seconds, she was blind as her head and neck became part of the building. Then the roof around her bubbled, her enormous eye emerged, and she pulled herself from the tar and kept going. A part of the building was in her now. She was part of the building, too. It wasn't so bad. As she rose farther into the pink sky, it seemed to her that the entire town of Middlecombe was getting a little soft around the edges. The land in the valley all around was pushing into it just a little bit. Her headache was getting much better now that she understood what she was really hearing were dozens of voices down there in the town. Most of them she didn't recognize, but some she knew. She heard her mom talking to Patrick. I'm glad she stayed home today. As she picked the voices apart from one another, thin threads wavering in the wind grew from her sides and began to search downward toward the town. A swarm of new threads rose from the town and joined with their ends. She was connected, but they didn't constrict her. It felt good. The headache dissipated. She understood that if she felt now like she did this morning, or even most of the time, she'd have been horrified. She'd have tried to break all those connections, figure out how to snap them all off and fly far away over the ocean and maybe not come back. But she didn't want to do any of that now. She just wanted to stay connected, even as a tiny thought grabbed hold of her. What is happening here? Three. The Monsignors on Julie and Fox frowned at Menchu. He had just told them what the orb had done, and because it still wasn't working right, what Team Three was going to need to do in order to find out what was going on. Forgive me, Julie said, but given all the research you've done on the orb, I'm not sure I understand why you haven't been able to restore some of its basic functions. Menchu nodded. He hoped that Aunt Julie was running interference with a question like that, trying to diffuse any sharper criticism that might come from Fox. But he also had the feeling that Aunt Julie was out of patience. Or, it occurred to Menchu, worried that maybe, in supporting Team 3, he'd backed the wrong horse. The orb is a complicated piece of machinery, Menchu said. Still, Aunt Julie said, I hope you can see why we might be questioning your research priorities. I see it, Menchu said. I'm glad to hear that. Anjuli said, an edge in his voice. I wish it gave me more confidence. I would like to echo what Monsignor Anjuli has said more loudly, Fox said, and I will not ask your forgiveness. You know that I have been very opposed to Team 3's recent activities from the beginning. All along, your argument has been that we need to prepare ourselves for an emerging threat, one greater than anything we have ever faced. Now such a threat seems to have emerged, and you are not prepared. The research has been very difficult, Monsignor Fox. No doubt it has, Fox said, and dangerous, too. I haven't been secret about my own objections to the research for this very reason, Manchu said. I have been the voice of skepticism. Yes, but I don't think you've been skeptical enough, Fox said. Not political enough, maybe just not smart enough. Manchu decided not to hide how much he was starting to seethe. Please enlighten me, then, he said. From your reports to us about your forays into magic, you have given the impression that the world of magic users is, in fact, rather connected to a surprising degree, considering how secretive it all is. Maybe there are isolated cells of people working on things they say nothing about, but for the most part, people talk to one another. Everyone knows what everyone else is up to. 
That's a very simplistic way of looking at it, Manchu said. My point is that the magical world knows what you have been doing. We have not advertised ourselves, but people know. Do you expect them not to talk? Quite the opposite, Manchu said. I think that was always part of our plan. But you have yet to entertain the possibility that your plan has backfired, Fox said. I know that our most virulent adversaries think of us as censors, even prison guards, agents of authoritarianism. But the more moderate among them, as you've reported to us, understand us as keeping things in balance. You yourself do not believe in keeping balance, Menchu said. You believe in eliminating magic altogether. Of course, Fox said, but they don't have to know that, and it's irrelevant to my point. What I am suggesting is that by making inroads into magic, your team has upset the balance. Your activities have caused other magic users to escalate their own activities. You have created an arms race, heading toward a war in which perhaps this is the first shot. You have no evidence of this, Menchu said. My dear father, Fox said, right now there is no evidence for anything. I resent your implication that I have been so careless. Fox smiled. Don't mince words. I wasn't implying it, I was saying it. And Julie gave Menchu a look heavy with pity. Menchu changed tactics. Fine, Menchu said. I am less interested in being right than I am in saving lives, so I hope that your greater understanding of the situation leads you to have a plan for dealing with it that improves on mine. This seemed to bring Fox up short. Menchu couldn't resist. No, he said. That, Fox said, is your domain and your responsibility. I expect you to exercise it. My team is ready the moment you need us. But this stands as the first real test of your team's unorthodox approach to your mission. And if you fail, I will do everything in my power to ensure that it is its last. Understood, Menchu said. Are we finished here? I hope so, Fox said. Menchu headed back to the archives with a single thought in his head. Asante better have some answers. Asante was on the phone with Izquierdo when Menchu arrived back in the archives with Grace. The orb's light wasn't blinding anymore, but it was throwing out a glow like a wood stove, as if whatever event had triggered the initial burst of energy was still happening, still bringing more magic into the world. Asante pictured a broken dam, a wound that wouldn't close. She wondered what the event that triggered the orb looked like for the people nearby who were living it. There's been a lot of talk about it here, too, Iskirta was saying. Do you know where it happened? We have an idea, Asante said. China, Ireland, and Mexico. Magical flare-ups have been noticed in Poland, too, but you know as well as I do what that was. Yes, as to the others, China is easy to explain, even if you don't know where in China, right? You know about the situation regarding magic use there? Asante said. I think that's why some people consider me an expert, Iskierto joked. That leaves Ireland and Mexico, Asante said. Yes, Mexico, Iskierto said. I uh, see why you called me. Do you have any information? I do, if you tell me I can trust you not to overreact. You can trust me, Asante said. Iskierdo cleared his throat. I uh, suspect, he said, that what your source detected is, uh, well, uh, it's me. Asante looked at Manchu and said nothing. It was an experiment, an attempt to uh, take a trip to visit another place. Why? I had questions that needed answering. I understand, Asante said. Also, I was just curious, too curious not to act on what I'd learned from my research. 
I understand that too, Asante said. Will you tell me what exactly you were trying to learn? No, Iskierdo said. Not yet. Did you find the answers to your questions? I did, Iskierdo said. Though, of course, they led only to more questions. You appear to have become much more adept in carrying out your experiments than you were when we last spoke. Relatively, yes. Though not enough, it seems to avoid detection. When she shot Asante an impatient glance, she raised her hand in front of her face and twirled it. I'm going as fast as I can, okay? Are you coming for me now? Iskierdo said. No, Asante said. Whatever happened must be pretty big. It looks that way, yes, Asante said. Thanks so much. Be careful, as always. She hung up the phone. Whatever is happening is in Ireland, she said to Menchu. How sure are you? Menchu said. Sure enough to get on a plane, she said. If you're wrong about this, we will have wasted a day moving in an unproductive direction. I know that, Asante said. But if we wait much longer, I'm worried that it's not going to matter anymore one way or another. The tension in the air rose between them. Asante could feel it. They spat out what they had to say almost at the same time. We should never have used magic, he said. We should have started using magic years ago, she said. There was nothing else to say about it. Francis looked up from the orb's manual. Are we going? Yes, Menchu said, now. He turned to Liam and Sal. And you're sure it's the network that's responsible for whatever has happened? I couldn't be much more sure, Liam said. Sal nodded. All right, Menchu said. Let's go. Do we need the orb? Francis said. Well, what? Manchu said. It's caused enough trouble already. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El Motar, Mur Lafferty. Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber, and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.